Introductions here. So, joining us on Zoom tonight, we have uh, Mark and Mike and uh, Kevin and Cynthia. And joining me here at Zendo, we have John and David and Ursula, a uh, new first time visitor with us tonight, uh, and then Keith and Joe. So, tonight, <clears throat> We're going to be looking at chapter 28, encouragement, encouragement of the Bodhisattva Universal Virtue. And from here on out, I'm going to refer to this Bodhisattva by the name that uh, he generally is known by, and that is Samatha Bhaga, the, uh, the Sanskrit name. So the, the Bodhisattva of great activity or practice harkens back to a point that I'm regularly making about reality being a verb, not a noun. Uh, so wisdom, this is one of the uh, places we can get hung up on with wisdom is we think of that as, as like a thing. You know, we study so we can learn something. We can master something. And this chapter on Samantabhadra <clears throat> is trying to shift that into the, the verb, the active side, that it's not to have anything. It's the way we carry ourselves forward. That's prajna in action. So this is why prajna and compassion are frequently uh, portrayed as being these two sides of really the same coin. And that without compassion, Wisdom is, is empty in the negative sense of that term, not in the positive term. <clears throat> so this chapter, uh, just like a couple of chapters ago, uh, we looked at Avalokiteshvara, uh, another one of the chief bodhisattvas. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at Samantabhaka. And <clears throat> As it's as the uh, scene is set in in the Lotus Sutra for for his appearance, uh, this Bodhisattva is said to have come from far in the east in order to hear the teaching of the Lotus. And we're familiar with all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas from various realms coming <coughs> to listen to the Lotus which is what they do every time the lotus is being taught by any Buddha. Uh, and as we've encountered previously as well with these various bodhisattvas who come to hear it, uh, in future generations, 
uh, Samantha Bhadra as well, uh, pledges to guard and protect those who receive and kept these teachings within the lotus. So this chapter can be seen as kind of an overall encouragement to give heart to practitioners of the lotus going far, far into the future. Even to our times, here we are studying the Lotus Sutra uh, nearly 2,000 years after it was first composed. And of course, for, for some traditions, it figures very, very large in their practice. But it's pretty significant for Soto Zen, because it was very significant for Dogen. So, And, and another uh, aspect of, of his appearance in, in the Lotus, uh, some of these bodhisattvas become associated with a particular animal, but they're generally, uh, in the iconography, they're generally uh, placed sitting upon, for instance. Uh, so Manjushri, the bodhisattva of wisdom, is associated with a lion, he's often seen astride a lion with his sword, which cuts through delusion. So in the case of Samantha Bhadra, it's a white elephant. Of course, white elephant means something different for us. He's not that, he's not the bodhisattva of, of that. <laughs> type of event, <laughs> just want to clarify. <laughs> but in India, obviously, the elephant uh, was, uh, was held to be a very high being. And uh, the color white signified purity. So that would have been a powerful image at that time. So, uh, one of the things I wanted to take some time to look at here tonight is because with practice, compassion figures into it so much. So there's obviously some overlap here with Bhavalokiteshvara. But uh, the role of compassion in the teaching of the Lotus Sutra. And it's teaching by both Shakyamuni Buddha and more universally, you know, the eternal Buddha, which is also Shakyamuni Buddha. Uh, but it's, it's this, uh, this sense of, as, as it's described in the commentary, of all living beings are animated by the compassion of the eternal and original Buddha. Animated, made active. So it's, it kind of inspires us 
to respond to the teachings in conjunction with our day-to-day -day encounters with, with things. Whatever they may be, the great uh, social uh, causes of our time, or the very personal matters. Uh, when I was in uh, Evanston, that was a couple of weeks ago now, uh, you know, I had a chance to meet uh, Trisha's new roommate, uh, uh, Romeo, who's a, uh, I, I, I'm not into dog breeds, but this dog is a King Charles III Spaniel. <laughs> It's the most adorable dog you, you can imagine. And, and she told me the story about him. Uh, that normally she gets shelter dogs, rescue dogs. But her the two dogs she had before died during COVID. And she learned that the shelters were, were emptying out all their dogs because people during COVID wanted a pack. So they go up in the shell and say, we need a dog. So then she realized, well, I guess we have to get them the way most people do. <laughs> Just go pick one out. Uh, so that's what, what she did. And, you know, as, as I'm looking at this uh, preparing to, to give tonight's talk, I, I'm thinking about you know, the kind of relationship that people have with their pets and this sense of compassion and loving kindness. So it spreads. I, I think the message here for us is that this isn't just limited to human and human. This clearly goes beyond that. I mean, the whole evolution of, of canines is built upon this. They were originally all wild wolves or other dogs. And over time, generation after generation, hanging around with humans, they uh, started to form some bonding and uh, yeah, leads to today and uh, breeds like the King Charles III Spaniel, which is about as, uh, as companionable a life form as you're likely to ever encounter. Uh, so yeah, this this uh, uh, animate being being animated by the compassion of the eternal and original Buddha, it it really does spread out wide, and I think it's good to to understand to see how that works. Could you say a little more about being animated? Yeah, I mean, it's really just, uh, you know, without getting into the etymology too deeply, but I would, I would, uh, when I hear animated, it, it tells me it's active. If, if one is animated, they're definitely not just uh, sitting tranquilly. 
So, and I, what I like about that term in connection with the practice is that because our practice is based on sitting and facing the wall, uh, it could be seen as being opposed to being animated. But no, that's to mistake the practice. That 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 repose that that we settle into with our practice of zazen is to enable us to become animated, but to become animated in a virtuous way. Oftentimes, if we hear animated, it might seem to have almost a negative connotation. Maybe it's a little edgy, <laughs> a borderline out of control. You're pretty animated, right? Wow. Yeah. The connection I have is, is is to bring to life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that works too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what this is about, though, is bringing a practice to life. So that's that's a very fine way to, to express it. So the uh, Samantabhadra asks Shakyamuni, and this is a question we've heard before in earlier chapters, how do good men and women, uh, uh, or how will good men and women uh, gain the truth of the lotus after the bees, after the Buddha's uh, death, extinction? Uh, which is pretty profound question if we really look at that. And the same thing could have been uh, asked of Jesus by his disciples. The same sort of scenario. Once they came to, to realize that uh, uh, Jesus' life was about to come to an end. And they would be kind of. Uh, from for a loop. So how, how do we carry on after that? And how how does it get carried on? Any tradition. We're kind of going a little bit beyond just the Dharma points here, but the uh, the building up of various okay use the term institutions to carry something forward ultimately and how that all plays through now obviously that wasn't what was being presented here because we're talking about the dharma so i'm taking a bit of sidebar here we're going to bring it back <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to hanging out there. Uh, but even to this day, we, we have these questions about uh, 
how much institutionalization uh, could be seen as being acceptable <coughs> for a practice like said, in order to carry this tradition forward. So I just want to kind of plant that seed because it's it's responsive to this question, and it's something that uh, maybe at some point further down the road we might uh, want to take a little more time to look at. But uh, in the Dharma realm, Shakyamuni answers this question by uh, referencing the four uh, the four requisites which he lays out as being uh, to be under the guardianship of the Buddhas. So that should ring bells for us about taking refuge in Buddha. And what does that mean? Taking refuge in awakening. You know, we're not treating Buddhas, whether it's that guy or any other Buddhas or Bodhisattvas, as deity like figures. They are exemplars for us, but Buddhas and Bodhisattvas only come to life, only become animated within us. So to be under the guardianship of the Buddhas is really ultimately taking refuge within ourselves as awakened beings when we engage in practice. That's where we have to find the refuge. So that's the first of the four requisites is uh, to be under the guardianship of the Buddhas. The next one is to plant the roots of virtue, which is pointing to practice, how we do engage in it. That's how we plant roots of virtue. So to be under the guardianship of the Buddhas, to plant the roots of virtue. And the next one is to enter into a correct congregation, which means sangha, community. And we talked about that, I think it was last week, about this notion uh, in the previous chapter of good friends. Friends that that are sharing the same path with us, that we walk with together to plant these uh, seeds of, of good virtue. So, and of course, that's one, one of the three refuges is taking refuge in some. So, and the last one is to aspire after the salvation of all the living. The Bodhisattva that. Or with our upcoming uh, Jukai classes, the resumption of them in September, we'll be looking at 
uh, the way of the Bodhisattva. So we're going to be taking a pretty deep dive into this last uh, one of the uh, four ways that, that this teaching was to be carried forward even after the Buddha's death. And to aspire after the salvation of all the learning kind of contains within it the, the understanding that true salvation means salvation with everyone else. It's not a one-off thing. It's everybody being cared for, being served. That's the way of the Bodhisattva. So to sum up our practice, since this is a chapter about our practice, uh, we could say that embodying the Buddha in our everyday lives is our highest good. That is our spiritual path, embodying, which kind of has shades of animation there. So it's, it's active to practice it. And we practice it in our everyday lives, not just in formal practice. A formal practice is to support us in our everyday lives, to inspire us in our everyday lives. But that's where our practice truly unfolds. And we uh, are very conscientious about it in a formal setting like this, for that reason. That if we're conscientious formally with it, it will move outside of the temple of the center and into the world at large. That's the whole purpose for all the stuff we do. They're all just ways of taking care of the practice of the Dharma and caring is at the root of our practice. And she also wanted say a few few words about uh, causality because that's another term that keeps circling back we're always revisiting that and when we talk about something like planting roots of virtue is kind of plain but, uh, causality and planting seeds or roots is to to act as, as an agent of causation to be of service to others, to promote well-being. So 
And it's in this general recognition that acts do have consequences. But it's also with the understanding that we don't control outcomes. So there's no guarantee that good deeds are going to lead to good results. We do them in the whole usually the expectation that they will, but uh, if, if our practice is informed by wisdom, we recognize sometimes they won't be. And that's okay. We still wholeheartedly engage in the practice, putting forth these good deeds and being all right with the fact that we don't have absolute control. Another uh, Buddhist term that's very relevant for this chapter is bodhicitta, the aspiration to awakening. Why would we enter on a path like this? That's what it causes it, is this uh, arising of bodhicitta, just a way of trying to give some sort of account for what arises within us. To lead us to do a practice like this, to study texts like this, to meditate. And there's no clear cut linear explanation for how that sort of thing happens. In Christianity, they would use a term like grace that allows one to, to enter into this spiritual practice. It's, it's grace, which is just another way of saying it. <laughs> we can't give you a rational account. And that's okay. So seeing that as a shortcoming, it's, it's seeing it as a shortcoming of our rational capabilities. But they can't, there are places they can't reach into. So we're certainly not the only tradition that runs into those boundaries and it goes right past them. one of those beautiful uh, events that happens in people's lives, this uh, rising of Bodhicitta. It's just very mysterious. So, 
there, when, when we do uh, finish tonight, we, we actually will be coming back next week and looking at, since this is the threefold Lotus Sutra, uh, we have the, the post uh, sutra, the sutra of meditation on the Bodhisattva universal virtue, Samadhi So it's, it's directly linked to this final chapter. But that will conclude our study of this text. But this chapter, chapter 28, is uh, the conclusion to the Lotus. Uh, so as I've been saying from, from the beginning of tonight's talk, uh, this con concluding section is, is emphasizing the point that the Dharma has to be put into practice. It's not enough just to study and gain wisdom and to sit. It's practice. And even Belga, with all his emphasis on Zaza, he he emphasized what he really emphasized was practice and equating practice and enlightenment that they're not two different things that we don't practice in order to attain enlightenment but practice is enlightenment so he's coming directly out of this core theme of the lotus sutra it's practice 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 and that's exactly what he taught. And the foundation he built for the tradition that we follow here of Soto Zen. <clears throat> and we do study and hopefully gain some wisdom. And we practice Sanza a lot. But these are just elements of practice. This practice encompasses an awful lot. There's the Eightfold Past, an updated version of that by John Dido Lori with the Eight Gates and Set. But any number you chose. I think he chose eight because it's parallel with the Eightfold Path, but any number is kind of arbitrary. Could he have made it 10 or 12 or 20? Of course. But you have to choose some finite in order as a skillful means, and shorter is better as a skillful means. So all these Lotus Sutra themes that are into this whole mix of how we uh, how we present the Dharma, how how we do practice well. So I think that wraps uh, up what I had to share with you on this final chapter, so we still have a bit of time to 
clear questions and thoughts on it. The floor is open. Mike. Hard to bow and unmute at the same time. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, the uh, when you're talking about the institutionalizing part, or you know, kind of building the the edifice of this thing, um, and then when you got you were talking about you know the the causality, um, that kind of pointed my mind back to the repentance ceremony, as it's sort of for me the first few times I came across that practice. Uh, I was like, oh, I don't know. I didn't really connect, like shrug, emoji, whatever. Um, like, I don't think I have anything to repent for, <laughs> which to me eventually made me kind of think, uh, you know, there might be some gap in my practice, kind of siloing it to my zazen time and my book time versus the rest of my life. So for me, one of those structures that kind of, you know, around this practice that brought those linkages together was the, the full moon ceremony. And your point about, you know, actions have consequences and, you know, we're aspiring to follow this path and aspiring to hit this mark, but, you know, saving all beings that's <laughs> we're we're setting our, ourselves up for a lot of repentances there so uh for me that's one of the many many forms in this path that i think kind of you know for lack of a better word pushes us back to the the central theme of you, you gotta live this it can't just be in the head or on the cushion it's it's a it's a wholehearted way to, to borrow a phrase. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we just recently went through the, uh, the Satipatthana Sutra, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So the role of mindfulness in that is it applies to the way we car carry out our practice, doing it mindfully so that we can be aware of how uh, our uh, our uh, deluded view of things emanating from our sense of self, uh, self-centered nature, how that enters into the mix. And then, uh, you know, repentance, unfortunately, has a, is loaded with tons of baggage uh, from institutions. <laughs> you can institutionalize it, and all of a sudden you've created a monster. But the basic practice of recognizing where you're kind of going off of the path of awakening, the, the way of the Bodhisattva, just to realize that and then come back. You know, it's really no different from the practice of Zazen, seeing thoughts come up. We're not trying to put an end to those. Uh, and we're always going to, we live our lives in delusion. But so the important thing is to see that and this gentle act of repentance to come back, to come back, rather than just becoming lost in it. And again, kind of like Zaza, we could just get lost in a stream of thoughts and 
30, 30 minutes could go by, the bell rings. <laughs> well, the same thing happens in our life. You know, we get pulled this way, that way, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, what, what happened? So we need to come back. Come back. That's all we have to say. Which also goes to like, you know, letting go of the moment, <laughs> like, you know, when you're on the cushion, like, oh, bad sitting, I'm doing a bad sitting. Yeah. Okay. It's a new moment. Yeah. Let's, let's come back to this one, see what happens. <laughs> Thank That's you. the crux of the whole thing right there. That nails it. Jump. It just reminded me of something that I was listening to uh, Joseph Goldstein talk, and uh, somebody asked him, "So you're you're no longer lost in thought at any point in time, are you?" Maybe not. So he had a chuckle. About that. <laughs> but, uh, but he was quite serious about most of the time. You know, like high percentage of the time, he could keep an awareness of present. Um, but he did say something that stuck with me. He said, you know, practicing uh, enables you with constant practice uh, daily to just get lost a little less often and to a little lesser extent and to recognize it and come back a little bit sooner than you normally would have. And as time goes on, that just keeps adding up uh, in your favor. And I, I think in some respects I'm finally realizing that myself, that there were no doubt there was a time in my life when I just got up in the morning and I had that uh, talk going on when I went back down at night and didn't know what happened in between and I started over the next day and I'm not there now. So uh, I think practice is um, really good at accumulating and keeping us moving in the, in the right direction as far as and on that matter of repentance actually the, the concluding sutra will be touching on that and actually uh, well, I haven't sat down to sort out how I'm going to approach that, but my initial thought is I'm probably going to just focus on repentance in, in connection with our discussion next week of that concluding secret. And not necessarily all tied into the text itself. So I'm not going with it. But that's, that's also one of those topics that we keep coming back to. That I know at least initially causes people to, to have some anxiety. <laughs> but I get that. I wasn't raised Catholic, but I still get that. <laughs> Uh -huh. 
have a comment. Oh, yeah, Kevin, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, no. um, the discussion about institutions and uh, it had me thinking about like symbols and what things represent and what they actually mean. And I thought about like chanting the the uh, Pledge of Allegiance as a child and like totally not meaning it or, or thinking about it. And uh, just that it's it's helpful to hear you say that it's like uh, the, the formal practices are supposed to map on to something real. Like it's not just uh, doing it because the teacher told you to do it. You know? <laughs> you don't want to be going to the principal's office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings, to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume, to draw strength and guidance on the living earth, the ancestors, future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species, to support others in our work for the world, and to ask for help when I need it, to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these lives. All right. Thanks for joining us tonight. And hope to see some of you on Saturday. Should be a, a oh, uh, Dean, yeah. it's, it's Mike. I'm having some car issues, so I'm going to do, I know I was going to.